Welcome to the Zen of Everything, a Zen take on life, love, laughter, and everything else. With Jundo Cohen, a real Zen master. That's me. And Kirk McElhern, that's me, a guy who knows a bit about Zen. I don't feel like it really. What don't you feel like? Anything. Why? What's the point? Uh, Sloth and torpor. By the way, Mr. Pronunciation, is it torpor or you correct me every week? Torpor is is correct, but do you know how they say sloth in the UK? They say sloth. At least that's what I was told. Isn't isn't that that kind of marmoset-like thing with long arms that in the ancient times, the giant ones that crawl up trees very Very slowly. slowly? Yes. And then they kind of linger. They look like couch potatoes in tree branches. Yeah, that's how I feel then. Really? What's up? In, I'm a sloth. You in a bad mood today? No, it's the five hindrances. I'm, I've got them all, I'm afraid. I'm suffering from sensory desire, a little ill will, mostly towards you, but don't take it personally. No, no. Restlessness and worry, doubt, and of course, sloth and torpor. Torpor. Yes. Sloth and torpor. Yes. It sounds like a law firm, Sloth and Torpor. And associates. You got it. <laughs> and that's our subject today. The five hindrances. Not the ink spots. Not yes. It sounds like a singing group from the fifties. The five hindrances. Yes. Yes. Well, I wanna say something that maybe this will be the shortest episode we've ever done, because if you're talking about hindrances, then you're talking about having something to attain. And I thought in Zen we said there's nothing to attain. So boom, I win this one. You actually got our central theme today. That's exactly right. What does this have to do with Zen when there's supposedly nothing to attain? It's an ancient teaching in Buddhism that is... Well, it's pre-Zen. It's, it's way pre-Zen. It's, it probably goes yeah. right back to the beginning, if not the beginning. And it's just a lot of common sense. But when you were doing uh, practices of meditation, especially for deep, concentrative states, or really any any Buddhist practice that you want to do intently, you don't want to be governed by sloth and torpor. You want energy. You don't want to be filled with doubt and restlessness and worry. You don't want to, when you're living in tight quarters with all the other monks, you don't want ill will. And of course, as a Buddhist, you don't want to be a prisoner of sensory desire. So this goes way back, way back. But what does it have to do with modern Zen? That's a good question. Well, the thing is, do you sit Zazen or do you go watch the latest Netflix series? You need to be free of these five hindrances, or at least not their prisoner, let's say. Because mm. I, I, I'm not a guy who says we're ever going to get completely past these things. I'm not that, I don't have that kind of uh, idealized outlook. You know, you know me. Yeah. But we can't be a prisoner of these things if we're going to practice, that's for sure. And in the rest of our life, well, what if we can, I don't know, get rid of two or three of them? Is that enough? The more we get rid of, the better. Really, these are not good qualities in excess. Okay. Well, where do we start? Because you've got five hindrances here, and some of them sound 
like they're a big deal and some of them sound like they're not a big deal. They're all a big deal. All a big deal. Okay. And they can be. The first one in your list is sensual desire. And this is not the desire for sensual activities. This is desire of things that come in the senses, correct? It can be a desire for sensual activities. <laughs> yes, that's one of them. It can also be a desire for ice cream. Well, that, that is, that's true. You know, frankly, at my age, the, the desire between sex and ice cream, sometimes I've, I'll go with the ice cream. But uh, any desire, sensory desire, is the source of dukkha, which we just spoke about very recently. This is number one. You see, all, all these uh, Buddhist categories, they tend to overlap a lot. Yeah. So this is just the desire we said was the source of suffering just a few weeks ago. If you're sitting there and in excess desiring something, something of, of sight, something you see that you, you want, some, some sound uh, that you want, some, some, some smell, some taste or feeling you want, it's not good, my friend. Mm. So skip the ice cream. In moderation. This is the thing. That's in why moderation. I said I'm not an yes. idealist. You know, a little ice cream. I don't know if the Buddha ate ice cream. I don't know if the monks ate ice cream. I don't know if they had ice cream back then. Frankly, I don't know if they had ice cream machines. But whatever they had, uh, don't do it to excess. Okay. How do we know when it's being done to excess? That's the hardest thing, isn't it? Because if we're blinded by our sensual desires, we don't realize that we're overdoing them. Oh, I do. I don't know about you. <laughs> you know, you wake up the next morning well, with a hangover. depends on which you know. one. Yeah, that was like I definitely one of the five hindrances right there, right? Okay, it depends on which one. If you're binging a Netflix series and you end up with, I don't know, back pain or neck pain from sitting on the couch too long, you feel it. But at the time, you don't. And you're, you're, having an, you're living an experience. You're in the moment as you're watching that Netflix series. So isn't that a good thing? I have nothing against Netflix, you know, in moderation. If you're just doing it all the time, then it's a, a, a trouble. Now, I, again, I don't know. Did the Buddha watch Netflix? I doubt it. I doubt it. They didn't have good cable back then. Probably no. not. No, they didn't have good cable, but they may have had theatrical performances or um, people reciting things. The Buddha actually said, stay away from that. In those days, they were pretty hardcore. They said, stay away from desires. And we mean, really get it down as low as possible. The Zen folks, especially the Japanese Zen folks, said, you know, let's keep it real. Life is, is worth living. You can go watch a show, you can go sing a song, you can go uh, appreciate the, 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 the flowers, and, the, and, and even some of the Zen masters said you can even appreciate, yes, a pretty someone of, the, of your attraction. You know, it, it's, it's not a, a, you can get married and, and love, you know, it's not a terrible thing when you're a Zen person. In moderation, in moderation, don't go to excess. And yes, even ice cream, you can have too much, and you know it when the doctor tells you you put on the 10 pounds. It's very easy. Buddhism is all about the middle way. I thought that the Buddha had been a, 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 a sort of a hardcore ascetic. And well, first he'd been rich and had all the food he wanted and all the girls he wanted. Then he was a hardcore ascetic. And I thought he came to the middle way. And the, what you said before makes it sound like he was really against all sensual desires. No, it wasn't all sensual desires, but where he said his middle was pretty basic. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was pretty big. Now, uh, granted, 2,500 years ago, 
you didn't have to worry about uh, overdoing with ice cream. You didn't have to worry about watching too much Netflix because they didn't have it. So or, already life was, in a sense, pretty basic. I mean, what did he give up? Dancing Girls. Dancing Girls gets pretty old, I think, pretty fast. So even life in the in the in the palace, I think, for most modern people, might have been you know you, you would have said like oh okay here here we are where's the microwave there's no microwave here you know it, it it's uh, so the palace even was pretty basic but Buddha's Buddha was pretty much zero sex um, no dancing no music uh, according to the traditional rules and. Uh, you would eat whatever was placed in the bowl, but you only got one meal a day, and you were not supposed to particularly have any feelings or attractions towards it. What has happened is, as as Buddhism has developed, we are looking more for a middle way, which is more a balanced way, a healthy way. If the Buddha proscribed dancing girls and music, that means that there must have been dancing girls and music back in the day. I mean, if they didn't have cable, what did they do, Right. A lot of dancing girls, I guess. Yes, they they had they had dancing girls coming in by cable. I don't know what. The... And they probably drank a lot of alcohol because even back then, alcohol was part of the social experience. Uh, not those monks. They don't drink any alcohol. Japanese monks. I'm not. No, I'm not talking about the monks. I'm talking about the rest of society around him. Oh no, the rest of the society. You could have your dancing girls and everything. Yeah, but uh, Buddha was pretty much about his monks. And the monks were zero tolerance on the the booze. If you go to Japan now, it's more everything in moderation. Not not when you're in the monastery. There's no bar in the monastery. I've looked. I've been in the monastery. I've looked around. They don't have like. There's no mini bar. No, I have been to a temple where after zazen, the guy had a karaoke bar next to the temple, and the people would sit zazen, <laughs> and then they would go to the next room and sing karaoke and have like a couple of you know a couple of highballs. And then everyone would go home, which I thought was was lovely. But that is very Japanese Buddhism, which would be shocking, you know, in much of the the, the continent for what the Japanese get away with. But I find it very balanced and healthful in moderation. But we're going to get stuck on sensory desire. We got four other exactly. hindrances. We got four more. We got a lot of hindrances to cover. And I don't want to get angry at you for neglecting any of them, because the next one is, again, ill will. When it's really hostility, resentment, hatred, bitterness, this is a bad thing. This is a bad thing in the Buddhist time. I think it's a bad thing. Now, there's a difference between being, shall we say, justifiably mm, moved to want to change the problem in society, feeling an injustice. Yes. All right. And even and even feeling anger. Uh, anger is like fire, man. It's, it's good on the stove to cook the soup, but you, if it gets out of control, you burn down the house. Be careful with anger. You can be angry about racism, about inequality, no. about environmental issues. No, no, you can't. No. You can want to change them. You can feel the injustice. You can be, uh, shall we say, moved, see a wrong, but you should not really be angry. Their famous story is that uh, a boat comes and hits you. Uh, in the fog, and you get you get angry at the guy who's driving that boat because he banged into your boat in the fog, and then you realize it was an empty boat. There is no one, there is no situation to be angry at. Oh, it's all empty. It's all uh, just what it is. We try very hard not to be angry. I even say when there's someone in the world or in life who does a bad thing, 
We try to see them too as victims of these poisons. Don't be angry. Angry is one we can do with almost without. But doesn't that let people off the hook? No, it does not. Okay. Okay. You you can still judge a wrong. If someone is, has done a wrong, society can still punish them. If you see an injustice, you can still fix it. But just don't get angry. The Buddha said being angry about anger is pouring gasoline on the situation. He, you know, that, he, he said it a little more poetically than I just said it. They didn't have gasoline. Right, he didn't have then. gasoline. No, but you get the yeah. point. Okay. So sloth and torpor. Yeah. Sloth and torpor, that famous law firm on Madison Avenue. Yeah. You know, if we're not a goal-oriented practice, why do we care about sloth and torpor? You know, again, I think it's a matter of moderation. Uh, even to do a practice of goallessness does not mean just to sit around and be lazy. It means to engage with life, to engage... If, to commit. To commit, to be dedicated and sincere. If I'm a dad, you know, I have to accept, you know, being a father and the responsibilities of family. It's hard work. And there's a time, you know, just to take it easy and and, and lie and see the flowers. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that, but there's definitely an energy and a, a certain commitment that has to be brought to it. Sloth and torpor, again, is excess being chill. Okay, the next one you have is anxiousness and worry. And it kind of bothers me because this isn't necessarily something we can control. Yes, it is. How? You can't really, if you're anxious about something, if you're worried about the future, about your life, you can't just shut that off. No, you can't shut it off, but there's a difference between, you know, being concerned and restless, naturally worried about something in life and being its prisoner. Excess again. It's all about excess. If mm. uh, if the doctor is going to tell me some bad news and I'm sitting in the waiting room, I might be reasonably concerned. I might even be worried for a time. It's in the brain. I have to accept that. It happens sometimes. But being a prisoner of that all the time? Like uh, being truly in a panic uh, about everything in life, again, that's too much. I think to be human is sometimes to be restless, to sometimes worry, to do it all the time. It's like ice cream all the time. Not good. But aren't these rules originally for monks, in which case, okay, they had to be anxious about whether they would get enough food in their bowls each day, but they didn't have to worry about too much else, did they? I'm sure there were things to worry about. They still got sick. They still uh, wondered uh, how their family was doing. They, you know, they were supposed to be cut off from their their family, but most of them actually did have connections to family. And even the Buddha was one time worried about his family. His family was under threat. And and uh, to be um, alive is to sometimes worry. Some people have again that idealized, romanticized version of Buddhism where. It means to be free of all worry. That's like putting your hand on a hot stove and just not wanting to feel pain. Mm. I don't I don't think it's a, a good thing, a healthy thing. Worry itself is not the problem. Life is hard. I just was listening to the wonderful REM song in the in the car. I'm I'm teaching my kid as we drive to the school every day. I'm teaching her about the old songs and the REM song was mm. Everybody, I'm singing, Kirk, you're going to get angry. That's number two. You can't, no ill will. Okay, no ill will. The one about everybody gets sad sometimes, right? Yeah. Everybody gets a little worried sometimes. 
it's okay. But to be a prisoner, that's too much. Okay, the fifth one is doubt. And to me, this is the most, I don't know, this is the easiest one. After sensual desire, this is the easiest one to point out, isn't it? Because doubt means that you don't trust people. It means that you don't believe in the future in certain ways. It's particularly important in the kind of Zen uh, I practice not to doubt. Now, the Rinzai folk, they talk about the great doubt. You've heard about the great doubt? Yeah. You sit, you sit, you're wrapped up in your koan, and you start to feel a great existential doubt. What would Sartre say? Les doutes. How do you, you speak French? But Ennui. Ennui is boredom, I thought. It is, but it's, it's the boredom that comes from doubt. It's the boredom that comes from uncertainty. All right. Well, you feel this great doubt and you break through it. It's that emptiness of feeling rudderless in our existence. Well, this is more than this. This is really a, it's all meaningless. There's no place to go. Why am I here? What is, what is the meaning of it all? It's meaningless. That kind of mm. big doubt with a D. And, and they break through that and they find such a, a feeling of union with a trust of being in the universe. Our Soto practice kind of goes about it a different way, but gets in the same place. We sit with complete trust that the sitting, that this moment, this experience is whole and complete. It is truly a matter whereby if the, the, the experience, it's like vanilla ice cream. If you doubt it's good, it's not good. If you feel it's good, it's good. It's up to you. We sit with the conviction that there is nothing to doubt. We sit with full trust that this moment is the one place to be, the one thing to do. And you know what? It is. And then we realize, oh, it's not just about sitting here. It's also the whole world, all of life. And we get the same place that the Rinzai folks get. They go through their great doubt and they come to great trust. We just start off at the great trust and stay there. So... It's a good idea sometimes to look at ideas like this and to look at their opposites to see how to frame them, right? So the opposite of sensual desire would be equanimity. Right. The opposite of ill will would be, let's see, equanimity? More equanimity. Equi equanimity does a lot. Sloth and torpor, the opposite would be kind of equanimity? See where I'm going here. Uh, no, in that case, I would say energy, motivation, sincerity, dedication. Okay. So the opposite of anxiousness and worry is? Uh, equanimity, and I think. <laughs> so we get three equanimities, and, and doubt, maybe not. Doubt, the opposite of doubt is trust. Trust, but we'll maybe sprinkle some equanimity on there too, yeah. It's, it helps. Okay, so, so basically, we can use equanimity for most of these hindrances as the opposite. And if we can cultivate equanimity, then we're home free. You got it. And uh, that's why equanimity and a lot of dedication and balance and sincerity and uh, having trust, uh, that's very important in, uh, in this way. Uh, you got it. We were talking earlier that we're, we're in a practice with no goals and what, what could hinder us from non-doing, right? But in some ways, we need to be aware of the hindrances that don't hinder us. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And this is, if you've noticed, not just about practice on the cushion. This is true through all of life. Don't be a prisoner of 
I mean, target your job, you're married, your your relationship with your kids, you know, go and walk it down the street and your neighbors. Don't be a prisoner of sensual desires, right? Don't feel towards your neighbor, you know, don't covet thy neighbor's lawnmower or wife or whatever it is. <laughs> uh, don't feel ill will towards the guy at the next desk or the guy over the fence, right? Uh, don't be a prisoner of sloth or, or torpor, or they're going to complain about your lawn. You got to cut it, right? You know, it applies yeah. to just all through life. Don't be a prisoner of restlessness and worry. Um, I was from that uh, earlier religion where that's where you're raised to be restless and to worry. You know, that's why we, <laughs> so many of us end up in Zen, I think. Yeah. And uh, don't have uh, too many doubts. Reasonable skepticism. Again, everything in moderation. Good. Doubt, especially when it's self-destructive, your own making, not good, and have a lot of trust. What's the main trust to have? That you belong here in this universe and this is your home. Okay, before we close, can you think of anything else? I uh, just encourage everybody to uh, be on the watch for this. And uh, when you uh, find yourself a prisoner of century desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry and doubt, say to yourself, you don't have to be, and do the opposite. Okay, Roshi, where do we go from here? I know I'm going to find something. I have no doubt. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. Please give us a rating. Tell your friends. You can check out past episodes at our website, zen-of-everything.com. Thanks for listening.